Chapters three and four of Book eight of Les Miserables, Volume five by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joyce Martin. Les Miserables, Volume five by Victor Hugo. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book eight, Chapter three they recall the garden of the rue plumet this was the last time after that last flash of light complete extinction ensued no more familiarity no more good morning with a kiss never more that word so profoundly sweet my father he was at his own request and through his own complicity driven out of all his happinesses one after the other and he had this sorrow that after having lost Cosette wholly in one day, he was afterwards obliged to lose her again in detail. The eye eventually becomes accustomed to the light of a cellar. In short, it sufficed for him to have an apparition of Cosette every day. His whole life was concentrated in that one hour. He seated himself close to her, he gazed at her in silence, or he talked to her of years gone by, of her childhood, of the convent, of her little friends of those bygone days. One afternoon, it was on one of those early days in April, already warm and fresh, the moment of the sun's great gaiety. The gardens which surrounded the windows of Marius and Cosette felt the emotion of waking. The hawthorn was on the point of budding, a jeweled garniture of gilly-flowers spread over the ancient walls. Snapdragons yawned through the crevices of the stones, Amid the grass there was a charming beginning of daisies and buttercups. The white butterflies of the year were making their first appearance. The wind, that minstrel of the eternal wedding, was trying in the trees the first notes of that grand auroral symphony which the old poets called the springtide. Marius said to Cosette, We said that we would go back to take a look at our garden in the Rue Plumet. Let us go thither. We must not be ungrateful. And away they flitted like two swallows toward the spring. This garden of the Rue Plumet produced on them the effect of the dawn. They already had behind them in life something which was like the springtime of their love. The house in the Rue Plumet being held on a lease still belonged to Cosette. They went to that garden and that house. There they found themselves again. There they forgot themselves. That evening, at the usual hour, Jean Valjean came to the Rue de Fille du Cavier. Madame went out with Monsieur and has not yet returned, Basque said to him. He seated himself in silence and waited an hour. Cosette did not return. He departed with drooping head. Cosette was so intoxicated with her walk to their garden, and so joyous at having lived a whole day in her past, that she talked of nothing else on the morrow. She did not notice that she had not seen Jean Valjean. "'In what way did you go hither?' Jean Valjean asked her. "'On foot. And how did you return?' "'In a hackney carriage.' For some time Jean Valjean had noticed the economical life led by the young people. He was troubled by it. Marius's economy was severe, and that word had its absolute meaning for Jean Valjean. He hazarded a query. Why do you not have a carriage of your own? A pretty coupe would only cost you five hundred francs a month. You are rich. 
"'I don't know,' replied Cosette. "'It is like Toussaint,' resumed Jean Valjean. "'She is gone. You have not replaced her. Why?' Nicolette suffices. But you ought to have a maid. Have I not, Marius? You ought to have a house of your own, your own servants, a carriage, a box at the theatre. There is nothing too fine for you. Why not profit by your riches? Wealth adds to happiness. Cosette made no reply. Jean Valjean's visits were not abridged. Far from it. When it is the heart which is slipping, one does not halt on the downward slope. When Jean Valjean wished to prolong his visit and to induce forgetfulness of the hour, he sang the praises of Marius. He pronounced him handsome, noble, courageous, witty, eloquent, good. Cosette outdid him. Jean Valjean began again. They were never weary. Marius, that word, so inexhaustible, those six letters contained volumes. In this manner Jean Valjean contrived to remain a long time. It was so sweet to see Cosette, to forget by her side. It alleviated his wounds. It frequently happened that Basque came twice to announce, Monsieur Guillenormand sends me to remind Madame la Baronne that dinner is served. On those days Jean Valjean was very thoughtful on his return home. Was there, then, any truth in that comparison of the chrysalis which has presented itself to the mind of Marius? Was Jean Valjean really a chrysalis who would persist and who would come to visit his butterfly? One day he remained still longer than usual. On the following day he observed that there was no fire on the hearth. Hello, he thought, no fire, and he furnished the explanation for himself. It is perfectly simple. It is April. The cold weather has ceased. Heavens, how cold it is here, exclaimed Cosette when she entered. Why, no, said Jean Valjean. Was it you who told Basque not to make a fire, then? Yes, since we are now in the month of May. But we have a fire until June. One is needed all the year in this cellar. I thought that a fire was unnecessary. That is exactly like one of your ideas, retorted Cosette. On the following day there was a fire, but the two armchairs were arranged at the other end of the room near the door. What is the meaning of this? thought Jean Valjean. He went for the armchairs and restored them to their ordinary place near the hearth. This fire lighted once more encouraged him, however. He prolonged the conversation even beyond its customary limits. As he rose to take his leave, Cosette said to him, My husband said a queer thing to me yesterday. What was it? He said to me, Cosette, we have an income of thirty thousand livres, twenty-seven that you own, and three that my grandfather gives me. I replied, That makes thirty. He went on. Would you have the courage to live on the three thousand? I answered, Yes, on nothing, provided it was with you. And then I asked, Why do you say that to me? He replied, I wanted to know. Jean Valjean found not a word to answer. Cosette probably expected some explanation from him. He listened in gloomy silence. He went back to the Rue de l'Homme Armé. He was so deeply absorbed that he mistook the door, and instead of entering his own house, he entered the adjoining dwelling. It was only after having ascended nearly two stories that he perceived his error and went down again. His mind was swarming with conjectures. It was evident that Marius had his doubts as to the origin of the six hundred thousand francs, 
that he feared some source that was not pure who knows that he had even perhaps discovered that the money came from him jean valjean that he hesitated before this suspicious fortune and was disinclined to take it as his own preferring that both he and cosette should remain poor rather than that they should be rich with wealth that was not clean moreover jean valjean began vaguely to surmise that he was being shown the door on the following day he underwent something like a shock on entering the ground-floor room. The armchairs had disappeared. There was not a single chair of any sort. "'Ah, what's this?' exclaimed Cosette as she entered. "'No chairs? Where are the armchairs?' "'They are no longer here,' replied Jean Valjean. "'This is too much.' Jean Valjean stammered. "'It was I who told Basque to remove them.' "'And your reason?' "'I have only a few minutes to stay to-day.' A brief stay is no reason for remaining standing. I think that Bosque needed the chairs for the drawing-room. Why? You have company this evening, no doubt. We expect no one. Jean Valjean had not another word to say. Cosette shrugged her shoulders. To have the chairs carried off. The other day you had the fire put out. How odd you are. Adieu, murmured Jean Valjean. He did not say, adieu, Cosette but he had not the strength to say adieu madame he went away utterly overwhelmed this time he had understood on the following day he did not come cosette only observed the fact in the evening why said she monsieur jean has not been here to-day and she felt a slight twinge at her heart but she hardly perceived it being immediately diverted by a kiss from marius on the following day he did not come Cosette paid no heed to this, passed her evening, and slept well that night, as usual, and thought of it only when she woke. She was so happy. She speedily dispatched Nicolette to Monsieur Jean's house to inquire whether he were ill, and why he had not come on the previous evening. Nicolette brought back the reply of Monsieur Jean that he was not ill, he was busy, he would come soon, as soon as he was able. Moreover, he was on the point of taking a little journey. Madame must remember that it was his custom to take trips from time to time. They were not to worry about him. They were not to think of him. Nicolette, on entering, Monsieur Jean's had repeated to him her mistress's very words. That Madame had sent her to inquire why Monsieur Jean bade not come on the preceding evening. It is two days since I have been there, said Jean Valjean gently but the remark passed unnoticed by Nicolette, who did not report it to Cosette. CHAPTER Four: ATTRACTION AND EXTINCTION During the last months of spring and the first months of summer in 1833, the rare passer-by in the Marius, the petty shopkeepers, the loungers on thresholds, noticed an old man neatly clad in black who emerged every day at the same hour, toward nightfall, from the Rue de l'Omarme, on the side of the Rue Saint-Croix de Betonnaire, passed in front of the Blanc's Manteau, gained the Rue Culture Sainte-Catherine, and on arriving at the Rue de la Charpe, turned to the left and entered the Rue Saint-Louis. There he walked at a slow pace, with his head strained forward, seeing nothing, hearing nothing, his eye immovably fixed on a point which seemed to be a star to him, which never varied, and which was no other than the corner of the Rue des Filles du Calvaire. The nearer he approached the corner of the street, the more his eye lighted up. A sort of joy illuminated his pupils like an inward aurora, 
He had a fascinated and much affected air. His lips indulged in obscure movements, as though he were talking to someone whom he did not see. He smiled vaguely, and advanced as slowly as possible. One would have said that, while desirous of reaching his destination, he feared the moment when he should be close at hand. When only a few houses remained between him and that street which appeared to attract him, his pace slackened to such a degree that, at times, one might have thought that he was no longer advancing at all. The vacillation of his head and the fixity of his eyeball suggested the thought of the magnetic needle seeking the pole. Whatever time he spent on arriving, he was obliged to arrive at last. He reached the Rue des Filets du Calvaire. Then he halted. He trembled. He thrust his head with a sort of melancholy timidity round the corner of the last house, and gazed into the street. And there was in that tragic look something which resembled the dazzling light of the impossible, and the reflection from a paradise that was closed to him. Then a tear, which had slowly gathered in the corner of his lids, and had become large enough to fall, trickled down his cheek, and sometimes stopped at his mouth. The old man tasted its bitter flavor. Thus he remained for several minutes as though made of stone. Then he returned by the same road and with the same step, and in proportion as he retreated his glance died out. Little by little this old man ceased to go as far as the corner of the Rue Filet de Calvaire. He halted halfway in the Rue Saint-Louis, sometimes a little further off, sometimes a little nearer. One day he stopped at the corner of the Rue Colchere St. Catherine, and looked at the Rue des Filets de Calvaire from a distance. Then he shook his head slowly from left to right, as though refusing himself something, and retraced his steps. Soon he no longer came as far as the Rue Saint-Louis. He got as far as the Rue Pavé, shook his head, and turned back. Then he went no further than the Rue des Trois Pavillons. Then he did not overstep the Blanc Manteau. One would have said that he was a pendulum, which was no longer wound up, and whose oscillations were growing shorter before ceasing altogether. Every day he emerged from his house at the same hour. He undertook the same trip, but he no longer completed it, and perhaps without himself being aware of the fact, he constantly shortened it. His whole countenance expressed this single idea. What is the use? His eye was dim, no more radiance. His tears were also exhausted. They no longer collected in the corner of his eyelid. That thoughtful eye was dry. The old man's head was still craned forward. His chin moved at times. The folds in his gaunt neck were painful to behold. Sometimes, when the weather was bad, he had an umbrella under his arm, but he never opened it. The good women of the quarter said, He is an innocent. The children followed him and laughed. End of Book 8, Chapters 3 and 4 Recording by Joyce Martin